Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe. I'm Thomas Hill. I'm delighted to have as our guest today on the show, the artist Buzz Spector, who just became an Emeritus Professor of Art at the Washington University in St. Louis, where he was Dean of the College and Graduate School of Art in the Sam Fox School of Design and Visual Arts there. Buzz has moved next door to us in Wappingers Falls, New York here. He is a conceptual artist and is known in my world, the world of art libraries and art librarians for his artists' books and book objects, genres in which he was both an early proponent and a practitioner. Buzz has a substantial retrospective on exhibit as we speak at the St. Louis Museum of Art entitled Buzz Spectre Alterations on view through May 31st of this year. If you happen to be near St. Louis, it's certainly worth a trip in. We also have in hand a newly published catalog on his life's work by the Zola Lieberman Gallery in Chicago entitled Buzz Spectre Between the Lines that we're going to talk about. So welcome, Buzz. Thank you, Tom. I'm glad to be here. I'm really glad to have you here because we do have book artists on periodically, but you know, Buzz Spectre was uh, you know, up there with Saul Witt and uh, Ed Ruscha, who have not been on, on this program. So, Because you do go back to those early days, actually. You've been doing this a while. So anyway, I just want to say welcome to the Hudson Valley. And I suppose my first question is, what made you choose Wappingers Falls and the Hudson Valley as a place to retire? Well, retirement in my case means no future full-time teaching Mm -hmm. uh, so that I have more time for the rest of my life as a family member and artist and writer. I'm a new resident of the Hudson Valley, but I've been here before. My dearest friends have lived in Beacon for many years, and I've taken the Metro North train up to Beacon from New York City on numerous occasions over the years. The Hudson Valley is scenic beauty, great institutions of art and culture, and it's close, relatively speaking, to our son and daughter-in-law who live in Boston. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's also close to the New York art world, which I don't know if that's any kind of a pull, because living in St. Louis and Chicago, too, I could see, I have friends in Detroit in the art scene there. There's a sort of resentment about New York sometimes. But on the other hand, you know, there is this pull and there's a lot going on in the city. So, so you were, for a long time, most of your life, I suppose, an educator as well as an artist. And then you mentioned you're making room here, in a way, for that part of your life that doesn't have to do with teaching. So you have more time to devote to your own art now? Absolutely. Have you established a studio then in Wappingers as well as, as a house? Well, at the moment, my studio is a corner of my kitchen table. Oh. You know, since I graduated from college, I've had 17 studios. And they've ranged from kitchen tables or desks and bedrooms on up to 1,800 square feet, which is the studio I closed down in in St. Louis before making this move. I think it's really important for artists to have studios. The separation between the studio and the residence, that can be varied. Mm -hmm. And I know it sounds like I have restless leg syndrome to to give you that number of studios, but Mm -hmm. really it's... There's lots of things to account for it. Moving, buildings shutting down or burning down in fires. Ah. And there's been a couple of times during my teaching career when I had both a studio on campus provided by an institution and uh, a personal studio off campus. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's difficult to talk about art on the radio uh, where we have to resort to ekphrasis to describe things meant to be apprehended visually. But in this case, since your work does transcend verbal and visual media, maybe it, it won't be so difficult. So I, I suppose the question I'm leading toward here, why focus in your career, over your career, in your art, 
on verbal media, books in particular, but also postcards and other kinds of verbal media? Well, I've, I've always been a reader as well as a person who draws or paints or sculpts. So the interest in reading I bring to all of the art I make is as important as the love of fashioning things that constitutes my production. You know, before I took up with books or photo reproductions or postcards, my origins were withdrawing. As early as uh, 1968, as an undergraduate art student at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, I participated in a male art workshop led by Sonia Landy Sheridan. And she was a pioneering artist of photocopy technology. And uh, this introduction to art sent through the mail stayed with me afterward. So uh, throughout the 70s, uh, alongside the drawings I was making, I made these little postcard collages and sent them to friends or to other artists using the postal service. But during these years, I always considered my art in relation to drawing rather than posting. And all the earliest works on view in my show at the St. Louis Art Museum are drawings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose they are closely related, writing and drawing, aren't they? Text and figure. Text is figure when you write it, you know, when you you put something into a book. Yes. When you record it. And in a lot of the work I've made that includes uh, words, I I use my grade school cursive handwriting Uh rather than... uh, going into ah, typography. Uh-huh. Yeah, interesting. So so um, I could feel a, a sort of maxim forming in my head once, although I don't know if it worked both ways, but it once occurred to me that all art is documentation for certain. But then possibly it works the other way that all documentation can be a form of art, certainly it does with artist books. That's what they do, isn't it? Yes. Thinking about your retrospective now that's on in St. Louis, <laughs> a big, big deal, I think, for an, for an artist to have a retrospective in a major institution institution like that that's so extensive and really so striking. From the brochure from the exhibit, it looks like a visually wonderful exhibition, but I have to say I'm a bit disappointed that there wasn't a a full-blown catalog for it, which makes me reflect back to another wonderful artist book exhibit that was on at the Walker Art Center in 2011 that was put on by our friend Rosemary Furtock in part where there was no catalog either to document certainly one of the most comprehensive shows devoted to the book as as an artistic medium I've seen. So uh, it makes me wonder then, is there something about the medium that wants to stimulate this kind of amnesia about itself, although it is about memory, or is it just that artist books don't have the glamour of a more established medium like, you know, painting or drawing to, uh, to cause curators and museum people to want to put what needs to be put into an exhibition like this to document them? And, and uh, you know, I should add, that's what museums do to a great extent. A, they show art to people, but they also document it. And I don't mean to make the St. Louis Art Museum look bad here, of course not, but it's a wonderful thing to show, but you know, it's just too bad that there isn't a document for it. I I don't know if you have any thoughts about it or... Yeah, I've I've thought about this uh, a great deal over the years. Mm -hmm. There have been other institutional surveys of artist books with catalogs, some, some pretty deluxe catalogs. The shame of Rosemary's text message show at the Walker was that this show, which had the most comprehensive engagement with the art movements of the moment didn't have a book to go with it. And some of that has to do not with a blind spot at the Walker in particular, but a subtle problem in general among uh, museums in that it's simply an impossibility to effectively document 
a book except if the documentation has as many pages as the book. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a deep medium, that's for sure. Yes. Even to exhibit, there's a problem with artist book exhibits or book exhibits of any kind, actually, and know, librarians will tell you this, and that you can have only one opening on exhibit at a time. And some people get around this by turning the page, you know, every day, uh, you know, during the exhibit. But on the other hand, you know, it seems there's a lot to write about here. And, you know, you could yes. have a comprehensive catalog. And there have, as you say, been attempts to do this on a large scale that have been done well, like the Victoria and Albert Museum's uh, Blood on Paper a catalog which weighs about 30 pounds as I remember so um, <laughs> just a thought but you do have anyway a monograph at the same time that's come out here a catalog produced by the Zola Lieberman gallery which is quite wonderful too and, and very well timed and it has wonderful essays in it by Gretchen Wagner and Elizabeth Wyckoff about your work and it does contain something of a kind of it seems to be a kind of catalog resonant on the back of least of your major works this is a fairly substantial book, but it's, it's, I'm sure it's in a fairly limited run. So uh, yeah. It is a limited press run, so any listeners with an interest ought to act on that interest uh -huh. soon. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking it'd be perfect I, I for say, DAP though, to pick up and publish, but if it's a limited run, they'll run out of copies. Well, you, you've brought up DAP, and uh, of course, uh, Skuta Helgeson is a, a longtime friend of mine, uh -huh. and he curated one of my earliest exhibits of found stacked books uh -huh. when he was uh, head of the WPA, Washington Project for the Arts Bookstore in 1983. So I've sent DAP the catalog. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, one thing that they've done over the years is they've reprinted uh -huh. short run projects that they found of interest. And so maybe, maybe, maybe there'll uh, be a second edition. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seems, you know, I'm thinking about, uh, I have librarian listeners, art librarian listeners, and I'm thinking they'll, they really should have a copy of this catalog. It's certainly an important work on the artist book and books as works of art just in and of itself. And it would be a valuable thing for any library to have and any art library to have. But I can see that it's going to be a scarce item as, as, the, as the years go by. So anyway, just then approaching art through words, can you talk about what it is you do with your art, generally speaking? Big question, but. Yes, and, and one I was hoping you would ask. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wrote a brief essay in 2010 mm -hmm. with the title, I Tear Things. Uh -huh. I Stack Stuff Up. And I'll read you its beginning mm -hmm. and then its conclusion. By way of introduction, I offer as my own an explanation of my artistic methods provided by a student attending a lecture I'd just given about my work. So he paused before asking his question. Your art is tearing stuff up or stacking things? I paused myself before replying, well, Basically, yes. Mm -hmm. I tear stuff up. Always paper, mostly pages. I stack things, mostly books, but sometimes more organic materials. On occasion, I cut printed papers up and paste some pieces down. From time to time, I stack things up, again, mostly books, in front of a camera and make photographs. In recent years, I've sloshed paper pulp around in vats, lifted masses of it up in screens, and deposited the wet sheets on tables before festooning them with strands of string or yarn before pressing and drying them. On other occasions, I painted on paper or pages, although not so far on canvas, before, during, and after all of this, I've made drawings, 
or else written words that sometimes can be read as art. And it ends with this. Much of my art consists in removal, all those torn pages, occlusion, all the books inside those stacks, or excision, the rest of the images in those collages of photographic details. What I've taken away from view could be seen as metaphors of forgetfulness, mm. but I'm more interested in acts of taking away that are also transmogrifications of the object. Mm -hmm. I remove such stuff as could make visible the remainder as armature of a different value. Absolutely fascinating, and especially from a conceptual perspective, but, but just fascinating as a way of physically doing art. It seems to me that the tearing, I mean, it really seems to, it seems to be your, you know, your Jackson Pollock discovery moment, possibly. I don't know. Was it like oh, that yes. when, you, when you did? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't start out to be Buzz the Ripper yeah, in no. the shadow of Jack the Dripper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, but anyway, it, you know, it, it really is it, it conceptually just wonderful. And, you know, it reminds me of um, an aphorism by Mark Auger that comes to mind to my mind as a librarian oftentimes. And it reads, memories are crafted by oblivion as the outlines of the shore are crafted by the sea. Meaning essentially that there's kind of an environmental thing going on in the way our memories work and that there's an erosion that takes place, I suppose, is what he was talking about there. But forgetfulness and memory together, what we can remember and what we can't remember, define a kind of edge or something that, that's where the figure itself comes from. Uh, maybe that's what I'm, th I'm thinking here. You know, that quote you, you read is just breathtaking. It covers so much of a fundamental attitude I bring to my work. You know, I, I've described all this tearing, and, and since we're on the radio, I, I thought in lieu of being able to show you what I do, I will tear a sheet of paper ah, okay. so you can hear how I do it. It never occurred to me, you know, reading about your art and looking at it, that it actually has a sound to it, this kind of tearing, doesn't it? You know. Well, the sound you hear, though, is maybe 10, 12 seconds of tearing to portion the sheet. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if I was just interested in, in a kind of random violence, uh -huh. it'd be over in half a second. Uh -huh. So the the sound of the tear is a signal that what I'm doing is, is careful, handled, but also highly directed. Mm -hmm. And I've said in other contexts that all of my tearing is a form of drawing. Mm -hmm. Just as in any graphite drawing, uh, every line stands for an edge. Uh -huh. Well, you know, there aren't that many edges in nature. So the, uh -huh. the fundamental illusion in drawing is the conversion of things in space to lines on a plane. Absolutely fascinating. I don't have a quote from old Martin Heidegger. His notion of the rift seems to be what we're talking about here in a way, in, in conceptual terms. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but Martin Heidegger- I, I vaguely had... recall a reference to it in Being in Time. Uh-huh. It's also in the origin of the work of art. He has this concept 
of what he calls the rift, which for him, you know, there are two forces at work in the work of art. There's the earth that's always closing, that's a sheltering force. And then there is the uh, world, which is an opening force. And they're always in a kind of tension and the work of art holds these two in tension in a kind of tense embrace. And at this point, there's what he calls in being a rift that takes place where there's a tear essentially. And then that tear is what design is all about, that the outline of the work of art comes out of this tension between the earth and the world, which is a terror of a kind. So, you know, your work seems almost to be a kind of illustration of his concept here. I'm just uh, speculating here, but... Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, forensic evidence. So anyway, it's wonderful. The experience is wonderful looking at a book and seeing what's buried in the book. I mean, we talked about a moment ago, the fact that when you have a book on display, you can only show one page at a time. But actually with your work, you can see down into the book, can't you? You can yes. see the text beneath the text uh, in a sense. Um, the first time I tore pages out of a, a printed book, I actually had something else entirely in mind. Mm -hmm. It was uh, 1980, yeah, late 1980, early 1981. And I had recently made a bound book of drawings working with uh, the great bookbinder, Bill Anthony. And uh, I had this project, which I wanted to commission Bill to do for me, which was to make a, a book whose configuration was that of a wedge. Uh, so a bound uh, wedge, mm -hmm. you know, perhaps an inch and a half, two inches at the spine. And all of the pages of the text block inside would be slightly longer than the sheet preceding so that when you open the book, you'd see the edges of all of the, the sheets that comprised its text block. Mm -hmm. And I was going to make a drawing in the sort of process-oriented method I was using at that time to suggest an ocean, as if opening the book, you found yourself looking at a paginated ocean. Uh -huh. Now, I had also in mind the great sonnet by John Keats, on first looking into Chapman's Homer, uh -huh. which describes at its conclusion, stout Cortez and his men who eyed each other with a wild surmise, silent on a peak in Darien. And of course, the Spanish conquistadores are silent because they've come over the crest of a hill in Panama and become the first Europeans to witness the eastern shore of the Pacific Ocean mm -hmm. on that promontory. And Keats seizes on this as a metaphor of the way reading opens up new worlds. Uh, yeah. There's another allusion in the sonnet to Humboldt discovering a planet. All of these vast, earth-changing realizations that come out of reading. And, mm -hmm. and of course, this is all inspired by Keats reading George Chapman's first English translation of the Odyssey mm -hmm. and the Iliad. Uh -huh. Actually, strange to say, we've talked about the Cortez before in a conversation we had about our collection of early Odyssey, early editions of the Odyssey. So, uh, you know, oh, that's great. Yeah. So um, now, actually, it was Balboa, but, Balboa, you know, yeah, but, yeah. But, but Keats wasn't an historian. He was a poet. It's a beautiful sonnet. So to bring it back to my work, I thought, uh, how about a book that was like a new ocean? So this is actually in the show, right? The Wedge work. There are several of the book wedges, but not that one, not that uh, one because okay. uh, I never ended up making a, a book of drawings called Chapman's Homer. Uh -huh. And that's because I, I took an actual printed book I had, which I frankly held in low esteem, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and started tearing pages out of it to make a model for Bill Anthony to mm -hmm. show him how I wanted it to work. And I'm, I'm maybe 30 leaves of removal into this project and I start hallucinating essentially. I, it seemed to me like as I tore the book apart, the, the individual letters were scrambling around in front of uh -huh. me trying to find their way back into words. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, so that effect was so utterly enthralling mm -hmm. that by the time I finished making the maquette, the maquette was the work. Uh -huh. Really interesting. So the book that you were tearing apart actually spoke to you in a strange way and in a way created the work for, for you. I mean, uh, which is what art sometimes does, doesn't it? Sometimes you just yeah. have to let it talk to you. And, uh, and as a matter of process, that this often comes up with artists that it's never just a matter of having the concept and executing the concept that you have to negotiate with your medium in a way. And your medium may have different ideas about what you need to do than you do starting out. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I didn't make any more graphite drawings for, oh gosh, almost, almost 20 years after that. It, it became absolutely consuming uh -huh. as an endeavor, not just the tearing, but the, the use of the torn edge in one context or another. Because yeah. I would save strips of cut paper and attach them, well, primarily to postcards to make uh, uh, things that appeared to be coming out of the scene and into the world. Mm -hmm. So you do things with paper and, and printed books, but you also do things with what's sometimes called a paratext. And one of the essays in the Chicago catalog mentions this. You do things with authors' portraits, uh, blurbs on the back covers, that kind of thing. So apart from tearing in, in a text block, there are other parts of a book, a published book that you like to engage here, right? Yes, um, absolutely. And then some of your works are collections of author portraits and collages that you've made from multiple editions of books. That's true. Both small-scale works, I generally, in the dust jacket collages, work at smaller than, smaller than one foot square, uh -huh. uh, on up to larger works on paper, up to 40 by 60. And then I've done installations of the individual cutout author photographs mounted by means of clips to the wall and those have extended sometimes for more than 60 feet in which uh, I compose with hundreds of images little segues in which gestures come and go and heads are turned to the left looking forward or to the right or or hands holding pencils or pens or fingers perched above keyboards wow. also start to draw attention to the relatively limited repertoire of poses we find in the special category of the dust jacket reproduction. Yeah, it's a sort of thing that goes unnoticed. I mean, we don't see these things. They just help sell the book ordinarily, right? We don't yes. pay attention to the, the, you know, the sort of graphic world there. That's very interesting because I think it does flow out of the text in a way. The writer doesn't become an author until publication. Writing is a creative practice. Authorship is project management at a bureaucratic level. <laughs> the sound of tearing paper, it can be alarming. And I wonder if people are sometimes alarmed by the fact that you do tear up books. I mean, I'm speaking as a librarian, you know, there's a great comic scene. You can get to it on YouTube with Mr. Bean in a library where he actually has to tear a page out of a book surreptitiously with the librarian standing there waiting for him to leave the library. And it's, it's kind of funny, actually. But it actually, it does engage that kind of horror that you have when people tear things out of books. Yes, uh, Rowan Atkinson 
plays that brilliantly. I think it's my favorite episode of Mr. Oh, Bean. I've, I've actually shown it to book art students. <laughs> yeah. So, so do you ever encounter that yourself? And that there is in all art, there is a type of violence that you need to perpetrate to create something. You have to destroy something, I suppose. So is that a problem or is it a part of your art? The very first book that I altered, I had this mixture of exuberance and shame about uh-huh. what I was doing. And uh, that's never totally left. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a house where books were totemic in their value, right? Uh Don't color in them. Don't chew on them. God forbid you should dog ear a page, you know? So there's always the memory of this violation of an informal taboo. And I've had people who look at uh, my work for the first time in reproduction Mm -hmm. and said, oh, this is disgusting. But I would not include any art librarians in that group. Uh-huh, no. And one reason is the very important difference between looking at a photograph of a book with pages torn out mm-hmm. and looking at the actual book. Almost all of the books I work with are widely distributed in publication uh-huh. or they're classics of one kind or another. And if you view what I do as a kind of censorship, it's a highly inefficient form of censorship that takes hours or days and reduces the total number of copies of that book in the world by one. No, well, obviously it's not meant to be that, but you are working with a thing and you're not letting the thing just be what it is in its own terms. However, you are allowing it to sort of perform in a new role in a way, you know, so and provide meaning in a different way than it's used to doing. Just fascinating, the whole scene there. You do work with other artists' materials, though, right? You have a book by Sala that's a rather famous artist book that you rip up. Um, I don't know if you've ever talked to him about it or... I, I did talk to Sal about it, but I didn't talk to Sal about it in advance. I'd admired his work, mm-hmm. And at one point, I was in the museum shop at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago sometime in the early 80s and saw the copies of the pretty substantial paperback book he'd produced with uh, Gianenzo Speroni Uh in 1969 of of various permutations of straight and diagonal lines. Mm -hmm. And looking through the book, I realized it was formatted in such a way that all of the pages in the book had the same size square. And uh, I was already well invested in the fact that all of the pages of a regular print book have a column length, which is about the same, and a column width, which is the Mm -hmm, same. And so the the effect of the language residue in other books Hmm. could translate just as well to the graphic residue Uh of Stahl's sequence of straight and diagonal lines. Uh So I tore the book according to my system with the first page completely removed and the last page left intact and every page in between torn incrementally to make that wedge-shaped cross-section of the text block. I then took the pages I'd removed and reattached them to the spine, to the Uh outside Uh of the spine, so that the book was all there, but materially reconfigured. Mm -hmm. Uh, The pages were still loose. You could still thumb through them to look at what portion of of a drawing or another was visible either in verso or in recto. Mm -hmm. And it was a gorgeous object. And in fact, it's reproduced as the front and back cover of my Between the Lines monograph. uh So 
I wanted to show Saul what I'd done. And uh, since I'd, I'd met him previously, I, I knew how to go to his studio and he was happy to welcome me in. And, and yet, as soon as I pulled the book out of uh, the portfolio, he drew back in horror. <laughs> and then he said, how dare you destroy the work of another artist to make your own object? And I was deeply mortified by this response, which I, I, I just couldn't have imagined. I reached to take the book back and Saul said, no, I'm keeping this. And I left just, uh, really, I was kind of, kind of humiliated yeah, uh-huh. by his anger. And, and yet, that's not the end of the story. Because he, within a month, had gifted the book to Franklin Furness. That's not something uh-huh. you do with an object you think nothing of. And when uh, the Furness archive was acquired by MoMA, that's how my work entered uh-huh. the Museum of Modern Art. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, interesting. This wasn't a multiple, right? This was just a single object, a one of a kind? Or oh, I, I altered a, more than one copy. More than one copy, okay. You had, yeah. Yeah. In fact, yeah. I, I altered five copies of uh-huh. the book, one of which I saved for myself, and uh-huh. uh, the one that I gave to Saul, and then the, yeah. the other three went into museum or individual collections. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Uh, absolutely fascinating. So it must have been something to be part of this movement of artists' books, the development of a genre, really, you know, starting in the 1960s with mail art and uh, democratic multiples. And then a lot of has happened since those days. But it must be interesting to have been part of all of this and to be have been a figure in all of this and to have helped shape what the genre has become. Yes. Yes. I mean, you and I know that artists making books is much, much older than the 1960s. So the, so the, 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 movement we're talking about is the rise a linkage between uh-huh. pop minimalism and conceptual art uh-huh. vanguard practices and other mediums and spaces yeah. with the book because some qualities of the book made reference to filmic experience uh-huh. duration yeah. the impossibility of seeing it all at the same time yeah. and to photography outside of its standing as uh, a deluxe artistic practice and cheap, inexpensive distributability, I guess, would be the neologismal oh, coin here. Yeah. You, can, you can pass them around or circulate them. So the heyday of this sort of field is between the 60s and the late 80s. And yeah. I think there's many artists making books today, but new technologies have attracted artists to screens or virtual environments uh-huh. that would previously have been realized on pages. I still think Rosemary's definition here of an artist's book as being a book that refuses to behave like a, a regular book. <laughs> so, I love you know, that. It does separate artist books out from Livre d'Artiste and uh, the older traditions, although there are, you know, artist books going back to the Middle Ages. I remember seeing at the British Library, I was looking at a case once of medieval manuscripts, and there was in the case a flagellum, you know, a, a cat of nine tails, but it was strips of leather that had been written on. And it turned out to be a chronicle, a German chronicle of the 15th century, I think. So it was obviously an artist book. You know, it was a joke, essentially, about history. You could beat yourself on the back right. of it with it. So, so your influences, do you have influences? Certainly, uh, my, my artist forebears include Duchamp, 
Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then more recently, another Marcel, Marcel Broters, uh-huh. uh, the poet turned artist later in his life, was also very much enthralled by Ed Ruscha's early photo book works, which I saw really at the same time as uh, that uh, Sonia Landy Sheridan workshop I, I referred uh-huh. to. I came to know and love Dieter Roth's work uh-huh. with books, but I also, given the investment I had in drawing, I also loved the drawings of Agnes Martin uh-huh. and Bia Salmons. Uh-huh. So I, both of these artists influenced me greatly. But, you know, I'm like any other artist, I also admire artwork of the more distant past and from other cultures than my own Eurocentric mm-hmm. heritage. If anything, a life of reading allows you to imaginatively occupy bodies and minds and hearts across genders, across times, across cultural frameworks. And this is why I regard turning the page as the most optimistic gesture uh-huh. humans are capable of performing. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. You can both find something new and go to, into the future, but also you can get rid of the baggage of the past that way. <laughs> so you can't forget, I guess. So, well. so your book sculpture, where you stack books, that's another part of this, isn't it? it seems yes. To be. And thinking about what your work reminds me of, I'm very much reminded when I see those works of Richard Long's environmental art. He would do this out in the field where he would arrange stones and and features in the landscape and then take photographs of them. He was a photographer primarily. But then there came a point where he would bring these things into the galleries and museums, especially stones, and then create rivers or create installations. And you do this with books. And then it makes me wonder about your book sculpture. Is there an environmental aspect to that, in a sense, the way you're stacking your books or maybe not? No, there is something of that. And and actually, referencing Richard Long here is really appropriate. I've loved Long's work almost from the moment I, I became aware of it. And I do think of the proportions I use in constructing my book stacks as having a, a dialectical connection to the scale Richard uses for his uh-huh. stacks. You know, uh, when he photographed a line of stones in the Himalayas, uh, a line, he could have taken the solitude and the time to make a line that was uh, virtually endless as far as the photograph is concerned, but he did not. Uh-huh. The arrangement of stones is perhaps 15 feet long, and so that it framed by its edges within the photograph as well as constituting a trace of his human presence in that remote locale. I once reviewed a Richard Long exhibit for Art Forum, and I had a criticism of the movement of his stones into the gallery. The photographs suggested the remoteness. Mm -hmm. They were a kind of authentication of his travel, which Mm -hmm. seemed to me at, at least as important as as uh, any formal properties of his mm. alterations of materials. Yeah. But it, in the gallery, you know, it's the truck from the, the commercial stone yeah. purveyor who delivers yeah, the, the material. Stone, yeah. Yeah, and so he arranges it, and, but, it, but it's, it draws on work done elsewhere for its credibility. Uh-huh. And uh, actually, I never, never heard what Long himself concluded about that writing. But I will say this, when I arrange my books in constructions, I've used as many as 10,000 books 
-hmm. but no more. There are other artists out there who work with many tens of thousands of books and at scales uh, that are much more fully environmental than my own. Mm -hmm. But I, I have an existential proportion uh-huh. I try to keep in uh, mind. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, so how many books would a committed reader uh-huh. be able to uh, uh, include in a lifetime? Yeah. It, it would be less than 10,000. Oh, yeah. Scholarly among us. That's, I should say that's a huge part of my lectures to uh, undergraduates about reading and libraries as I take them down into the stacks and I show them exactly if they were to read a book a day, how far they would get in my stack downstairs, which is one side of one small range of about six bookshelves of books. Not, yes. not that many. So, so then the question becomes, you know, you can't read all the books. What are we doing here? So one thing Richard Long does work with is postcards, I know, you know, and you work with postcards also, yes? Absolutely. Lots of work with postcards. Uh-huh. I used to make them and send them to friends, make them. I'd, I'd find a commercially produced postcard and uh-huh. I'd glue some stuff to it. <laughs> yeah, you and Rosemary. I don't know if she got this from you or not. I have a box full of postcards that she sent me over the years that are basically things that she's ripped up or attached things to and then written a couple of words on and sent them to me. It's how she communicated. So it's an interesting medium though, isn't it? The postcard itself. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. We don't use uh, it anymore so much though. You know, maybe when people travel, they'll collect them and send them out. So people have pictures of where their friends are visiting, but not well, I'm so going much. To predict, uh-huh. I'm going to predict a brief new heyday for postcards. Ah. As soon as, uh, as soon as enough people feel safe enough to go to the post office, uh-huh. because because uh-huh. we've had now more than a year of, of mostly engaging with people through Zoom, uh-huh. and uh, I think a yearning for uh-huh. physical closeness and for material traces is going to show up. It is a communications technology for sure, big time. And it's tied to the the mail system. And it's also about framing because you can only write so many words on the back of a postcard. So your message has to be thought about often. And then you actually collect these in your work, don't you? And and that attaches to, you know, something else we can talk about, your collecting practice or or collecting as an expression of what an artist does. Oh, yes. I started collecting postcards almost as soon as I... I started sending out uh, mail art examples. Uh-huh. And I now have a pretty substantial collection of postcards because at a certain point, I started collecting them for reasons other than their potential to be altered for my own artwork. And I suppose I have maybe 10,000 cards. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's not a, not a huge collection. I, there's other postcard aficionados who, who you know, they, they have a million cards. But again, I, I will say this about the cards in my collection. They, they've all been looked at and read carefully. Uh-huh, uh-huh. At one point, they were a, a communication between two people, both public and intimate. And then everybody can see it. It's not hidden in an envelope, your message, but on the other and, right. and, and it goes through the mail. And, but it's also a personal message written by hand. And then you actually arrange these in installations. Yes, uh, postcards. Yes. So, yeah. There's oh. a piece I did back in 1992 called Red Sea uh-huh. slash Red Sea. And the first Red Sea is the name of the, the small sea that divides the Arabian Peninsula from the African coast. And the second red C is red and then the, the letter C. Uh, uh-huh. And the C in that second part of the title is the C of the Cunard line because uh-huh. it's visible in a postcard view 
of an ocean liner. So I re-photographed that old postcard and had 5,000 copies made of it through commercial four-color offset printing. It was a, an aerial view, so you saw the ocean liner surrounded by water. There was no horizon line. And I had the 5,000 cards of this facsimile printed up, identical to the original postcard on the front, but on the back, a little message with a quote from uh, 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 a French symbolist poet, I am the space where I am. Ah, oh, interesting. I was just thinking as you were describing this to me, Artur Rambeau, you know, but... Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. It was Rambo. Uh, well, was it? Oh, was it? How strange. That should pop into my head because, yes. you know, what it was, was the, you know, his really strange way of mixing landscape and city and uh, concept and something visual in his poetry. Uh, yes. But there was another half to this project. Uh-huh. Another 5,000 cards printed, but I had the printer reverse the red and blue plates. So what was blue in the original postcard was printed in red in this oh. second version and vice versa. And so it gave me a, a, the same ship on a red ocean instead uh-huh. of a blue one. Uh-huh. And then the complete tableau was a grid of 24 stacks of postcards, uh-huh. 12 of which had a blue ocean, 12 of which uh-huh. had a red ocean, uh-huh. and uh, each of which had a little ocean liner with its sea, uh-huh. a red sea. Uh-huh. Um, and you were free to take those postcards. Yeah, I was going to say, them. were these distributable or did you sell them one at a time to uh, no, I didn't, I didn't sell them at all. Tab, tableau. Oh, okay. So, yeah, but no, they, they must be collector's uh, items, I would have thought. Viewers could take them. Yes. Oh, okay. Actually, I've recently started seeing them show up online, uh, oh, usually okay. in the 10 to $15 oh, okay. range. So maybe you could buy them on eBay or... Uh, well, Tom, yeah. I'll, I'll make sure and, and send you one because okay. I still have a, I'll put I still have a few hundred yeah. left. Okay, okay. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. So, uh, And then you do have your waterfall installation, right? I remember seeing that in the catalog, which was quite striking. Postcards of waterfalls arranged into waterfalls. Uh, in, yes. It's a big waterfall. So. With, with an armature uh-huh. that arced outward from the wall oh. as if a jet of water oh. was spraying oh. forth. And of course, yeah. then there's the naughty bit, which is... Uh, a second panel mounted just above uh, the arrangement of 36 uh, postcards of waterfalls showing three images of uh, the mannequin piece uh, in uh, Brussels, the public fountain in the form of a, a little bronze boy who is urinating uh-huh. to create the... <laughs> so is there in your collecting things like postcards an archiving impulse? I mean, is archiving an aspect of art, do you think? Arranging things, matching and sorting things, collecting things for whatever reason we do collect. I mean, it seems you are an instinctive collector. I mean, some people don't collect that. They, they never collect stamps, never collect anything. But I've been a collector since I've been very small. I remember collecting stones that had breaks in them somehow large stones that would be broken in half that I would find in my yard that I would hide under my bed in a box. Somehow I thought these things should be together and they should, they should, (laughs) but you're a collector also. Yes. Absolutely. And let's draw on a distinction here between what's archival and what's encyclopedic because there are lines of force here, which go in opposite directions. The ways in which a library aspires to the encyclopedic is an example of centrifugal force. It moves outward from a core idea about Uh categorizing knowledge towards the margins. Uh 
So the encyclopedic is constantly expanding. Uh But the archival, the force in an archive is towards a core, towards an absent core, Uh because the person or the idea or the historical period that dictates the archive is something interior, something Uh within. Uh So it's centripetal force that guides the arrangement of materials in greater or lesser relevance to the concept of the archive. And in that, the operations of an archive are more like the way artists employ their thinking, their feeling, their presence at a moment in time to exert their work. I've never considered that distinction before, but it reminds me a bit of what we were talking about earlier, about the pull of the earth and the world, nature and culture, closing on the one hand and opening on the other. I don't know, Derrida deals with this in archive fever. I can't can't remember if there was an empty core there. With Derrida, he's enamored of the back and forth. Uh-huh. You know, he goes on and on about page turning in a slightly yeah, different well, context yeah. than I do, paying attention to the hinge, but not to the rupture, so uh-huh. to speak. Yeah, interesting. Something to think about. You, in your catalogs anyway, are classed as a conceptual person. So were you part of that movement, the movement that came out of art and, oh, language? Like art and language? Yeah, art and language. I don't know if you had any correspondence with those people or um, if you were thinking along those same lines at the time. I was thinking along similar lines, but remember, art is idea. That's true enough of all Uh, intelligently fashioned artifacts. Yeah. uh But I really have too much love of my materials to be a fully fledged member of high church conceptualism. I I see art making as a means of inviting empathy Uh uh, of the shared humanness between makers of things and and the witnesses of those things. Uh Authors and readers, in a way. I mean, your audience, it's the readerly person that you're appealing to in your audience here, I think. I mean, that's what you can connect with, right? Yes. And I've done that literally because, uh, you know, I spent many years editing White Walls, uh, uh the magazine of writings by artists that I co-founded with my beacon friends, Uh Reagan and Uh Roberta Upshaw. And we published art as words, in quotes, Uh by many of the central figures of conceptual art. So we, we had Great work by uh, Douglas Hubler, Lawrence uh-huh. Wiener, uh-huh. Robert Barry, and Adrian Piper. But we also had great writing by many other types of artists. And at least in our first few issues, we, we published poems and fictions by writers with involvement uh-huh. in visual art. So apart from your artwork, you're actually involved in writing about art, yes? For years, I, I was a reviewer and occasional essayist for Art Forum, uh-huh. um, but also for other art magazines. Uh-huh. And... Uh, you know, I've published off and on over the years some of the poetry I've made from those dust uh-huh. jacket collages. Uh-huh. So do you collect artist books, among other things at all? I other certainly artist books? do. Yeah, you do? Okay, yeah. They're <laughs> wonderful objects to collect because you can get them usually fairly reasonably, even now. And uh, yes. they make wonderful collections and conversation pieces, I found. so. Uh, well, it's a terrific teaching tool. Uh-huh. And I saw my collection, it really flowered in the 80s, but I've, I've continued to collect. And in, at this point, I have maybe, I don't know, 1,500 or so artist uh-huh. books, uh, but also many books that I think are artist books in disguise, uh-huh. books with other intentions that uh-huh. satisfy the, uh-huh. the purposes of, of artist books. Sort of uh, found artist books. Right. You know, I have on occasion been a visiting artist at the Central Academy of Fine Arts in Beijing. Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. And I keep getting invited back because I bring a suitcase full of artist books with me uh-huh. and show those to my yeah. students in Beijing. And uh, uh-huh. they, in turn, have generated many, many books of their own in response. So if I'm sowing a, a field of future book artists there, uh-huh. I'm happy with that. Oh, oh yeah, wonderful. So uh, I got a feeling you, you're going to miss teaching, you know, unlike most artists uh, who, uh, I shouldn't say most artists who teach, but many artists who teach always feel it's they're taking away from their art somehow by teaching. But I don't have that sense with you. I got a sense that teaching was part of what you do. Yes. I oh, mean, absolutely. as an artist. Yeah. So I guess my question is, are you going to miss teaching as just an artist and not having that stimulation of your students um, or the stimulation well, I, of teaching? I still have some investment in the field. You know, I, uh, I have a, an ongoing faculty appointment in the PhD in creativity program at University of the Arts in Philadelphia. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and that has enabled me to spend time with uh, young people working on their doctorates in, uh-huh. in fields, not just art specific, but, uh-huh. but all of which are transdisciplinary. Uh-huh. And we've provided a home for rethinking research and applying uh, ideas outside of conventional intellectual practices to writing a dissertation. So between that and the the occasional teaching in Beijing and my hope to continue to do the occasional visiting artist or workshop gig here in the Hudson Uh Valley, I'm not going to starve for that kind of dialogue. Or be isolated from from people interested in the way students are interested in what you're doing. Uh, Yeah, sounds wonderful. So do you have projects in development by any chance at the moment? Or uh, is it too soon? I mean, you've really just moved in, haven't you? So. Yes, I am at work on a couple of things. Uh One is a commissioned portrait of two artist friends of mine, or an artist and her husband, a collector. And, you know, my method of making author portraits out of stacks of printed images, Uh I'm doing that for this commission, which will show the the two of them in two separate wedges of torn multiple images that converge in the middle, Uh like any good relationship ought Uh to. Yeah. And uh, another thing I'm working on, it's just in the planning stage, but the Rockford Art Museum in Illinois has invited me to do a a major book installation Uh project next year. Uh And I'm working out some of the engineering and uh, material accumulation issues. Sounds wonderful. Something to look forward to. So I'd like to thank you, Buzz, for visiting with us today on the Library Cafe to talk about your retrospective at the St. Louis Art Museum, which is entitled Buzz Specter Alterations, and welcome you to the Hudson Valley here. So Thank you, Tom. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, me too. Very much. Thanks.